our culture claims to be a culture that seeks after authenticity, reality, what's really there. We want it. We want something that's authentic. We want something that's real. We want something that's not fake. And that's why we love reality television so much. Because it is real, right? Right. No scripting whatsoever except in the shows where they're scripted, which is most of them. You know what I love at the end of um, reality shows? Sometimes if you'll, if you'll watch to the end where there's a disclaimer, at the end there will be a disclaimer that says, some decisions or things were edited or changed at the request of the producers. Which means it's not real, right? There was a headline a few months ago. Have anybody ever watched the show Storage Wars? Anybody ever watched that? Look at that. Look at all the Storage Wars people, all right? Storage Wars, for those of you who don't know, is the story. I mentioned it before. It's, the, uh, it's a show where people, you know, have uh, storage units and they forget to pay the rent on it or they choose not to pay the rent on it. And so then they go and auction it off to people and you just kind of buy whatever you see and then you go through and you find stuff, right? Well, there's this report several uh, months ago that one of the stars of Storage Wars, yes, they have gotten to be stars, a guy named Dave, right? How many of you know who Dave is? Yeah, Dave was kind of the big wig. He was the big guy, all right? And he was the guy that when he would, when he bids, he'd just say, yep, just, yep, there it is. And he'd just go up. Well, Dave has left the show. Tragedy, all right? And you know why he left the show? Because he was tired of the producers planting things in other people's storage containers. You mean that that $40,000 vase wasn't right next to the Legos? We love authenticity. We think we do. And one of the things that I love about the Bible is that in contrast to reality television, the Bible is authentic. And shows life as it really is. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about a series called Red Letter Prayers. So we've been looking at prayers that were given by Jesus or teachings from Jesus on prayer. And we started with what is most famous prayer that has ever been said, which is called the Lord's Prayer or the Model Prayer. And our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We talked about the teaching elements that Jesus had in the midst of that. Then... Two weeks ago, we talked about not the most famous prayer of all time, but perhaps the most anguished prayer of all time. When Jesus is in the garden, just moments before he's to be arrested, and they come to take him away, he is literally sweating blood as he is sitting there and praying with such fervency. Lord, I don't want to do this, but I want your will more than mine. And last week, um, we looked at a place where uh, Jesus critiqued our prayers, which is kind of like most of us' worst nightmare, right? Imagine Jesus sitting at the dinner table when you say, let us pray, and at the end of it, Jesus going, let me just give you a couple of pointers real quickly, all right? But he talked about some things that we have to think about, and that it's not just about pestering God until we get what we want. It's remembering that God cares for us, loves us, wants to give us good things, but it is bringing ourselves in line with what God desires. 
So this week we're going to finish up. We're going to start a new series next week, completely different, but we're going to finish today. And what I want to finish today with is this thought or this um, prayer. We've looked at the most famous prayer. We've looked at the most anguished prayer. We've looked at Jesus' critique of our prayers. But today I want to look at what some people consider to be the most beautiful prayer that has ever been prayed. If you've got a Bible, turn to John 17. If you don't have one, it's not going to be up on the screen today, but we're going to walk through it in a way that you'll be able to just kind of conversationally know what's going on. But in John chapter 17, we have Jesus getting ready to pray. Now, what's interesting to me about the authenticity, reality of what we see in the Gospels is that the Gospel writers, the biographers of Jesus, give us details of His life and give us an intimate portrait and its reality. And so we see Jesus here at a very difficult moment. What's interesting to me about the book of John in particular is that it is not like the other Gospels. What are the other Gospels? Matthew... Mark, Luke, right? Those Gospels in scholarly circles are called the synoptic Gospels, which is a big word to say they're a whole lot alike. They're very similar. They see Jesus in similar ways. They tell the same stories. They have the same teachings. They may be rearranged or little differences here and there, but they're the same story, the same vision. In fact, synoptic, you see optic in there, it kind of means the same view. And then you have John. And John is not like the other three. John gives us kind of an insider's view. This would be from the one that is closest to him in his entourage. This is the one that is his best friend. From what we see in Scripture, Jesus calls John, or John calls himself, the one whom Jesus loved. This is his closest friend. And John gives us some details we don't get in the others, specifically in the last week of Jesus' life. In fact... Half of the book of John is dedicated to the final week of Jesus' life. And as we come to this place, we see Jesus in a moment of desperation. Chapter 17. Just to kind of give you an idea, he's been talking to them for several chapters in the upper room where the Lord's Supper was, and he's getting ready knowing that death is on the horizon. Chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven, and said. I think one of the things that's interesting here is, in the garden we get Jesus' private moments with God. His one-time moment with God, just Him. The others are asleep. This is Jesus and God conversing. In the model prayer we have Jesus go, this is what normal prayer ought to be like. Here we have Jesus, what I think starting out as a prayer, as a teachable moment, saying, I'm going to pray to the Father, but doing it in a way where everyone around can hear. Father. In fact, he starts out in the third person. Father. Now, every prayer Jesus prays in the Bible, except for one, he begins with the word, Dad. And that's important. Every time we've started a prayer, I've talked about this, but it's important because it reminds us that God is most of all, even as He is omnipotent, omnipresent, He is most powerful, He is on high, He is otherworldly, He still likes for us to refer to Him as Dad. In fact, what I hope doesn't happen, and and some of you, this is the first sermon you've been at, and perhaps you can go online and, and all the previous sermons are online and you can watch this series. What I don't want in this series is... What I don't want is for you to come out of it and go, oh, I feel so terrible, I feel so guilty, I don't pray enough, I'm not good enough, I feel shameful because I can't pray. 
What I love about Jesus' approach here is that he reminds us that prayer begins for the beginner or for the most experienced with a simple declaration of dad. In fact, if you're somebody that your prayer life isn't where you think it ought to be, it's not enough or not right or not good enough, I just encourage you to begin with dad. In fact, one of the best ways to begin prayer is not to try to think of the loftiest term you can to describe God to impress yourself. Our most holy, high, benevolent, wonderful, omnipotent, great Father. Just start with Dad. We need to talk. You remember a time when you had to go to your dad or one of your children has come to you and just said, Hey, Dad, I need to talk. Sometimes it's good, right? I mean, like you've done something, you can't wait to get home. I remember last year, Eli, we had sent him to school. We had worked on this speech. He had done this, gotten this speech ready for 4-H speech. He got in there, and Susan, when we left him that morning, and I dropped him off, Susan called and says, I just hope he does okay, he doesn't get upset, everything's good. And he gets in the car, and he's got this kind of grin on his face. I said, so did you do your speech? He goes, did you do okay? He goes, well, I won. Hey, Dad, can I tell you something? It's like, you want what? Tell me about it. And he just wanted to tell, Dad, let me just tell you about it. He had won first place in his class. We were so excited. He could not wait to tell me that. Dad, you're not going to believe this. Sometimes it's not excited that you use those words, right? Remember when I was growing up, my brother would pick me up from elementary school. My brother, who was five and a half years older, had gotten his license, picked me up from fifth grade. We got in the car and he said, Lyle. Be prepared to hear lots of screaming when we get home. I said, what's going on? He said, listen, on the way to get you, I was running late. I put the foot on the pedal a little too hard. Cop pulled me over. I got a speeding ticket. Dad's told me if I get a speeding ticket, keys are gone. So we get home. Brian says, well, I'll just get out going upstairs. I'm going to go talk to Dad. So you know what I did? I snuck back around to see what was going to happen, right? I didn't go upstairs. Why would I go upstairs? So I sneak back around and I see Brian walk up to Dad, hand him the keys and say, Dad, we need to have a talk. Sometimes it's just there's indecision in life. I don't know what to do. i got a decision to make. I'm thinking about college or a job or a career or something at school or friendship or relationship. Dad. We just need to talk. Listen, Jesus is at this moment. And he comes and he just says, Dad, we've got to have a talk. And the next phrase he uses is a very important phrase. He says, for the hour has come. Now, throughout the book, in fact, John and five other times, Jesus says, my time has not come. His mother wants him to change water into wine at a great wedding feast. And Jesus says to her, woman, my time has not come. His brothers say, if you are who you say you are, why don't you just declare yourself to everybody, show everybody how great you are. And he says, my time has not come. The people want to make him king. They want to make him the ruler. And he says, my time has not come. The hour has not arrived. And then he comes to the father here and he says, dad, we need to talk because the time is here. Now, what is he talking about? What time is he talking about? What's about to happen? 
crucifixion, right? He's about to die. So he says, Dad, the moment is here. The moment of truth. The moment that the entire history of the world has been going towards since Adam and Eve in the garden. And you spoke and the serpent was there and you said that you will bite his heel, but he will crush your head. That moment is about to arrive. The moment that you foretold of in the Passover, in that moment when the Egyptians came people go and you said it's time the time has come but the time will come when a greater one will arrive the time was arrived the prophets had talked about when they talked about a messiah one who would deliver a deliverer would come jesus says the time is here and we need to talk the truth is on a smaller scale all of us will have those moments in our lives when the time has come When the diagnosis is bad. When the loved one is gone. When the job is over. When the children leave. When the spouse disappoints. And the question is, where do we turn when the hour has come? Jesus always turned to the Father. Now, we have invented lots of things for us to turn to. Alcohol, drugs, schedules, relationships, gossip, pity, self-absorption, retreat. Where do you turn when the time has come? Jesus says, Dad, we've got to have a conversation. Here's what I want you to see that's important as you look through the rest of this. We're not going to read every verse. It's an entire chapter of his prayer. I'd encourage you, if you've got a Bible at home, you've got a Bible with you, find a Bible this afternoon and just read John 17. It is a powerful prayer. But here's what I want you to see in there. The first thing he does is he prays for himself. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify You, for you gave him authority over all flesh, so he may give eternal life to all you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Father, the hour's come. I pray for myself. I want you to notice, first of all, that it is absolutely okay to pray for yourself. Some of you get the impression, and I hope I haven't given this in sermons, that we never pray for ourselves. That's not what God says. What Jesus does is He starts by praying for Himself. Amen? That's where He begins. That's where He starts. Now, I want you to notice that He prays for Himself, but He doesn't limit it to Himself. And there's a difference. He prays for Himself. He prays that God would glorify Him. In fact, He says, God, make me like I was before the foundations of the world. That is an amazing statement. 
Because Scripture says that before the foundations of the world, that Jesus was the one who spoke the world into existence. And he says, God, remember what it was like when we were together. Remember what it was like when I was in glory with you. Remember what it was like when we were perfectly in harmony together in spirit. Lord, I want that to happen again. But to get there, you have to get me through what is coming. What I love is Jesus never says, take me out of this, get me out of this. He says, get me through it. And as I'm going through it, let me honor you. Jesus prayed for himself, but he didn't limit it to himself. Listen, when you're in a tough situation, when the time has come in your life, it is perfectly okay to say, as we have talked about, God, I am desperate for an answer from you. I desire to know you. I want an answer. I want relief. I want resolve. I want something to happen. But Lord, use me. Let me honor you in the midst of it. And here's what I love about it. Jesus knew That the only way to rescue us was for him to go through what God was putting him through. I saw a a tweet actually between services from somewhere that Max Lucado is preaching today. Many of you know Max Lucado and his writings. And he said, many of us pray to get out of the situations that God is using to change us in our own lives. God, just get me out of this. Just, Just let me be free of this when God is looking and saying no this is what I'm going to use to shape you and to mold you and to bring you closer to me here's what I love he says glorify me so that I might glorify you and so those that you have given to me those are the people the disciples the people that would come after those that you have given to me might have eternal life now when I use the phrase eternal life most people immediately think of heaven and that's a, that's a good assumption. That's a good place to go. But a lot of people have a misconception about heaven. If you believe kind of popular understanding of heaven out there, someday we'll all get there and we'll get a little chubbier and we'll get a fluffy cloud to float on and a harp to play and wings to fly around with. Now the flying might be cool, but everything else doesn't sound very much like heaven. Amen? I mean, so, you know what I'm talking about, the little chubby baby pictures of angels? Y'all just looking at me. Y'all know what I'm talking about? The cherubs, right? Listen, every time in Scripture someone sees a cherub, you know what they do? They fall on their face afraid. I've never seen a baby in a diaper make somebody afraid. Right? So when we get to heaven, they're not going to be a bunch of babies sitting on clouds with diapers playing harps. Heaven is going to be much more than that. But here's the key. He makes this point. Eternal life is much more about who you're with than where you are. You ever notice that who you're with can transform where you are? Right? Apparently not. Are you here? Some of you spouses are like, no, it doesn't matter where we go. It's always bad. No, you ever notice that? Like if you have a spouse... You ever been somewhere that's really not a good place necessarily, or it's not fun, or the food's not good, but you just have a good time because of who you're with? Maybe it's a group of friends that every time you're around, it doesn't matter where you are. You just have a good time. You laugh. You have a good time. It's fun. It just doesn't matter. Who you're with makes the place more than the place makes the place. Amen? And he says here, this is eternal life. Look what Jesus says. That they may know you. 
the only true God, and me, the one that you sent. Eternal life is in the presence of God the Father. So the first things he prays is this. Lord, glorify me. Father, Dad, let's talk. I need you to glorify me. I need you to help me make it through this situation that I'm in. Honoring you. Because in honoring you and doing what you've called me to do, I will give a chance for these people that will be called mine to come and experience life with us. That's a major deal. Without Him being faithful and being glorified, we have no hope. We have no joy. We have no purpose. We have no peace. We have nothing. As a pastor, on a regular occasion, I stand in front of caskets with the remains of loved ones behind me and I speak to families. And let me tell you, if we didn't have the hope of what Jesus Christ did in His death, burial, and resurrection, there is no way I could stand that many times in front of people and talk to them about the hope of Jesus Christ. He says, Glorify me so that I may bring them to you. Then he prays for his disciples. If you have a Bible, look at verse 6. He says, I revealed your name to the men you gave me from the world. That's his apostles. That's the ones that are with them in the upper room. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that all things you have given to me are from you because the words you gave me I have given to them. They have received them and have known them for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. Right? That's a lot of confusing kind of back and forth. Let me tell you what he's saying there. The important thing he's saying here is this. That because he has revealed their name. Now, the name there means more than just, hey, call God this. The name there means his character, his authority, his power. What he is saying is, I have demonstrated to them who you are in all your glory and all your might and who you are. He says, you gave them to me. They have kept your word. They have grown. They have progressed. They know that I am from you and I am giving them the words you gave me about who you are and how to live. And so he has, basically he's saying, I've given them everything they need. I've instructed them. I have taught them. I have shown them. I have demonstrated to them. I have done for them what you have called me to do. Verse 9. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world. Now, don't get sidetracked there. That doesn't mean he's not praying for all people. It just means the system of the world. But those you have given me because they are yours. My things are your things, and yours are mine, and I've been glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are. I'm coming to you. And then he prays two things for them. Holy Father, protect them by your name, by your authority, by the reason of who you are that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I want you to look at that for just a moment. He says, listen. I'm about to go to the Father. I'm about to come to you. And my prayer for this group of people that are remaining is that they would be together. What Jesus realized in this passage and what he realized as he was getting ready to leave the earth, that the biggest obstacle to the cause of Christianity in the years that were to come would be me. My. Mine. And what he's attempted to do, and he realizes that he has taken 12 guys that are completely different from different places, and he's trying to mold them from a group of me's into a group of we. 
And he's saying, I'm concerned, I'm praying, because the thing that could tear them apart is that they begin to set their own agendas and live by it instead of the agenda that comes from us. Lord, I pray that they would be one. You realize that you and I believe that what we think about things is right. Right? I mean, it is obvious that the toilet paper should come from the bottom and not from the top. Amen? We could not live in the same house. I cannot understand how anybody could think otherwise. Do you realize there have been major arguments between spouses over the direction of the toilet paper? Not in your house, right? We don't fight about inconsequential stuff like that. You know some of the hardest words in the English language to say is, you are right. It's not hard to say you are wrong. That's easy. You are right is difficult, right? Because we know best. You know who knows best? I do. That TV show, Father Knows Best from a long time ago? That's right. I'm Father, yes. I know best. We have our own preferences, our own styles. And Jesus realized that the biggest obstacle to the cause of Christ moving forward is me. In fact, if you look at the letters written to churches, you look at Acts that come after this, you realize that it starts very quickly. In the book of 1 Corinthians, they're arguing over who their favorite preacher is. And they're saying, well, I just wish I could have this preacher. Well, I wish I was this preacher. Well, I was baptized by that preacher. Paul says, I don't remember who I baptized, and I'm glad because I don't care. Well, he is so insensitive. He said, quit arguing about it. We're one. One body. The Galatians. The people in that church, they're mad at each other about whether you've got to become a Jew and get circumcised before you ever become a Christian or whether you can be a Christian without being a Jew to the point that Paul has to get in Peter's face and say, shape up. In Philippians, even. Philippians is the book that everybody says, well, there's no bad words in Philippians about the church. But you get to the end and he says, tell those two women to quit fighting and to start working together. Divisions happening all over the place. Aren't you glad we're past all that? Okay, maybe not. He says, I pray that they would be one. I was thinking about this yesterday because I was thinking about how when times are easy and Jesus is going to pray, he says, listen, the world doesn't like me. The world's not going to like them. You're going to have to protect them because the world's coming after them. And the world comes after them. When times get tough, that's when division happens. I was thinking about it yesterday watching um, college football. And I don't know whether you know this or not, but the only major college football team in the state of Tennessee that is undefeated resides in Knoxville, Tennessee. Did y'all know that? we got to get that out of the way now because after Oregon next week, we will not be talking about it, all right? But I was thinking about it because I, I saw the scores coming in from last night and just, you know, this is probably not right of me and it's confession time here. There is a team that I watch for the sole purpose of thinking it would be okay if they lost. And they play out on the West Coast and I went to bed before their game was over and I woke up this morning and I saw the score, Washington State 10 The University of Southern California, seven. That's right, amen. Right? Now, there was a coach that was at Tennessee, 
And if he would have stayed at Tennessee, we might have been good by now, or we might be on 45 years of probation. I'm not real sure. And he moved to Southern California in the dark of the night, and he hadn't had the most successful run. Last year, was uh, they said, well, that's just a year. This year is going to be better, and it has not started out better. This is what I thought was interesting. I read this story this morning. Apparently, one of their players walking off the field walked past a reporter. And as he walked past the reporter, the words the reporter heard him say as he was walking off the field was, I didn't sign up for this. That's not good. Right? Two games in to a 12-13 game season, that's not what you want to hear. Because I can guarantee you two weeks ago he was like, I am in this to the end. We are one brotherhood together, united. We're doing it together. Nobody's going to tear us apart. And guess what's happening two weeks in? It's like the old boxer that said, everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the mouth. And Jesus says, listen, these guys are about to go out into the world and they're going to get punched in the mouth. I don't want them splitting off saying, this is not what I signed up for more. And they got punched in the mouth. Crucified. Drawn through by a sword. Sawn in half. Crucified upside down. Attempted to be boiled in hot oil. Exiled to a prison island. They got hit in the mouth. And Jesus says, I pray that in those moments, it's more about we than it is about me. That is a lot easier said than done, isn't it? When life hits you, it's easier to say, how can I get out of it or what can I get out of it? How can I solve this situation? And God says, don't limit it to you. Remember the we. Verse 15. Here's the reason. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Verse 18. This is the reason it's so important they stick together. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. He says the reason, the reason that they have to stay together is because of the task that they've been given going forward. And it is the task to take the word of my kingdom to the people of this earth. In fact, he goes on, and this is just amazing. Verse 20. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their message. Let me just tell you this. He says basically, I don't pray just for my apostles, just for the disciples that gathered around me. I pray for every person that will ever come to believe and follow me because of the message that they're going to begin to proclaim. So here's an idea. This is, this is biblically correct. It's theologically correct. You can take this to the bank. That on the night before Jesus went to the cross, you were on his mind. He was praying for everyone who would ever believe. Absolutely amazing. In verse 21, this is what he prays. May they all be one. As you, Father, and I, and him and you, and are one. May they also be one in us, which is important, so that the world may believe you sent me. Here's the problem most of the times with our prayers. Is they're not big enough. 
What Jesus says is, it's okay to pray for yourself. Pray for yourself. Pray. I want through this. I want to glorify you in the midst of it. Lord, I have this illness. I have this disease. I have this situation. I've lost someone. I've lost a relationship. I've lost financially. I've lost a job. I've lost a career. I've got this issue going on. I have a past that I just can't seem to get past. I've got a future that is unknown and I don't know what to do. I've got all this stuff around me. Lord, I pray that you will get me through that glorify you. But don't just stop there. Make sure that your prayers aren't so inwardly focused on you that you forget the bigger picture that we are a part of. And what it says in Scripture is that we are part of a major, grand, huge picture and that we ought to be praying not just that God, you'll get me through this, but that we will be unified together as believers in order to bring people to understand that God loves them and cares for them. Our purpose ought to determine our unity. Now here's what's important. He didn't tell us to get unified around a social convention or organization or even denomination. He didn't tell us to get organized and unified around a political affiliation. What he says is to get organized and unified around the goal of showing people that God loves them and cares for them and that Jesus died for them. And what is saddening to me about the church of the 21st century is we let all that other stuff get us distracted from the big picture. The problem with most of our prayers is they're not bold enough and they're not big enough. They're focused too much on us. So here's the question I have for you. Today, kind of think about prayer and you think about it in your own life. Is this one of the moments you need to stop and say, Dad, we need to have a talk. I haven't been bold enough. I haven't been big enough. I haven't been thinking outside. I've been praying for unity. I haven't been praying for protection. I haven't been praying that your word will be spread and your gospel will be pronounced. I've been kind of focused on me. Is this one of those moments you need to say, Dad, here's the thing that's going on in my life right now and I don't understand it or how I'm going to get through it, but I'm praying you'll take me through it to honor you in the midst of it. Let's pray together.